Welcome to episode 10 of the Composer Happy Hour, presented by Whatever and Ever Amen. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. If you are listening to the audio-only version of the show, I want to remind you once again that this episode is also available as a video, which is really the best way to be a part of the conversation. You can find the video at buymeacoffee.com slash whateverchoir. And if you're enjoying the show, that site is also the spot where you can show your support by buying us a beer. Your beer money contributions help to support future episodes of the podcast. For the third episode in a row, we are being sponsored by the wonderful Four Fires Meadery. They are an incredible meadery located here in Toledo, Ohio, but their meads are also available for shipping nationwide. I will be drinking some of their stuff during the episode today, and if you want your own bottle, and trust me, you do, you can visit them at 4fmeadery.com. That's the number 4fmeadery.com. More about them later in the show. My guest for today is Eric Barnum. In addition to being one of the most well-recognized contemporary American choral composers, he is also a podcaster. And when you're done here, you should take a listen to the Choral Contrarians. I've been binging it in the last couple of weeks, and it has really expanded my thinking on a number of topics, and in a way that you probably won't find in many other choral resources. Eric and I share a connection, both having done our doctoral work at the University of Washington, and that's just one of the reasons that I admire him. He's a great guy and a phenomenal composer. Today, we discuss Starbucks, winter weather, and whether or not Mozart is any good. My name's Brad Pearson. My guest today is Eric Barnum, and this is the Composer Happy Hour. Eric. Brad. I have a secret. Oh, great. That could be dangerous. I'm ready. You're on my podcast. I am. I didn't even realize it that I'm yeah. on your podcast and not mine. Crazy. Well, yeah. See, uh, that's. I know you see what I did there. I, I have been listening to your podcast, and uh, I kind of I stole I stole your intro. I don't even know if you still do it, uh, but you no, did in the don't. early days. Yeah, you, you you need to keep listening because about like six episodes in I abandoned it entirely because I'm like man I'm just run either running out of secrets or like this kind of is a tired trope now it's yeah. kind of well a, I thought it was funny I thought it was funny Eric it Barnum welcome welcome to the podcast how are you I am great very excited to be with you very good very good to see you old yeah. friend from the northwest there you go uh it's happy hour uh what are you drinking tonight well I am stuck working on a narrative document for promotion and tenure for my university. So I am absolutely con- needing caffeine and yet I, I don't have one. So I have nothing right now. <laughs> <laughs> I came with nothing. I came with nothing for you. Uh, I, uh, I, I understand. Uh, I, I do have a beverage. And uh, uh, for the sake of the listener and a sponsor, uh, I'm going to introduce it. So we've been really lucky to have a sponsor the last couple episodes. And uh, are you familiar with Mead? 
Yes, I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm drinking a mead, which is, you know, essentially a, a honey wine. Uh, and this is by a meadery in town called Four Fires Meadery. Mm. This particular mead is grafted branches, which is an apple mead aged in bourbon barrels. So and this would be the, the drink of choice for my heritage, uh, old Norse people. I'm 100% Scandinavian. Uh, yeah. Well, okay, like, okay, 95%. Yeah, right. Whatever. Sure. Swedish and Norwegian, but this was the drink of ye old Leif Erikson and Papa yeah. Eric, you know, Eric the yeah. Red. All right. What is it? Well, taste like? you're, you're drinkless, but we'll say, I'll say cheers just the same. Cheers. And it's delicious, of course. What is uh, it? What does it taste like? I mean, a, a little apple pie like, right? Because you get kind of, um, a little smoky back end from the bourbon barrels, but I mean, it's a sweet, it's definitely um, sweet forward, right? So it's apple and sugar and, but you know, it's I was surprised uh, when delicious. you held it up that it was dark. Why is that just the light? It's dark. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty dark. Yeah. I uh, thought that, I thought that mead was, I mean, is, tr is, are all meads dark? I don't know. No, I mean, the color is just, it's like wine, right? So you, there's a huge wide uh, okay. color palette and um, kind of depends on what they put in it. But uh, I've been enjoying a lot of mead lately and fortunate to have them as a, you know, sponsor for the show. So are they local? They are. They're in Toledo. Uh, and of course, people listening will hear me in the ad run that I run in the midst of this. Uh, oh. They are shipping nationwide. So if anybody Great. is uh, interested, but they are, they're based in Toledo. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Yeah. So, uh, how are things? How you been, man? Um, well, I, I think for this podcast and your listenership, I will be honest. No, I, I, I'm a bit, I'm a bit tired and maybe other people kind of get it. I mean, there's sort of this uh, summertime uh, was, I think, really great. I really sort of turtled up with my family. Yeah. What I mean by that is we didn't turtle up. We turtled up together and then went a bunch of places. Yeah. So I did quite a bit of traveling this summer. But a good analogy is, you know, this whole weekend analogy where you, you work and then you have a great weekend and then you're more tired than you know, you're more no, tired I... after the weekend than when you start on Monday again. And that's sort of where I'm at. Like, this is the Monday of the school year coming up. And I've just got projects going too many. I feel like I've dropped a lot of balls along yeah. the way. And I'm sort of feeling a bit guilty for this thing over here. And, and a bit that being said, um, I had a great summer. I saw some mountains. I climbed a mountain. I, I finally got to climb Katahdin in Maine. Um, got to see the coast. Um, so, I mean, I, can't, I cannot complain. And I get to go back to a school where I know that there will be good music making. I, I know that there will be. I'm excited to 
spend time with those students. And, and my older son is seven, so he's going into second grade today. Nice. And we, that was a wonderful time this morning to see him off one more time. And then our youngest is four and a half, and he'll be going to pre-K very soon, which is now, so we're in the transition we're in the yeah. transition period of seeing them really substantially get older. So there's a lot of joys, a lot, a lot, a lot of joys. But as you can attest, just things get tiring. I mean, <laughs> life is life gets tiring these days. For I, it's hard to be an adult. How about no that? kidding. No kidding. You know, uh, my son is uh, about 15 months and he started daycare for the first time on Monday. So mm. I, of course, had the job of dropping him off and got to see him just cry and just be devastated because he knew I was leaving him. Yep. My wife got the job of picking him up where she got all the joy yep. of seeing you know him uh, recognize her when she walked in. So uh, I'm a little envious of that. But uh, yeah, you, you know. are the abandoner and she's yeah. the rescuer. That's yeah. going to be the the, yeah, the nurture that's developed. Awesome, <laughs> I awesome. Do, I do. Hey, I did. I I had some of those too. We're all. Yeah, they'll learn because <laughs> yeah, you'll be sure. the one that gives the candy, and and then mom will be the one that gives the broccoli. So there's well, there's you know, I, here and there. I cook dinner most nights, so he okay. he knows I'm I'm taking good care of him. So okay, uh, good, yeah, good, you good. know. Uh, well, we're gonna we're gonna move. Uh, pretty quickly tonight. I know that you've, you've got some other things going on. And so we're going to, I'm just going to like bust through some stuff here, but I want for the listeners who may not know you, uh, or even those who, you know, know your music and know a little bit about you. I want to, we're going to go, this is going to be a deep dive. Uh, can you tell us when and where you were born? I was born in Crookston, Minnesota in 1979. And uh, Crookston, I just will say, mm -hmm. where is that, right? <laughs> Crookston, um, if you were to, uh, an easy way to say it, most everybody kind of knows. If you were to go straight north of Fargo, which some people don't even think is possible, but it is. Yeah. <laughs> go farther north than Fargo, another hour and a half. There is a town up there that some people have heard of called Grand Forks, North Dakota. Yeah. And Crookston is about 20 miles from that on the Minnesota side. So all there is up there is flat Red River Valley beet fields. Huh. That's really all there is. Yeah. Not a lot yeah. of trees, nothing. Yeah. What, uh, what are your parents' names? My dad's name is David. And my mom's name is Mary Lou. And what did David and Mary Lou do when you were growing up? Or what do they do now? Yeah. David, my dad, was a science teacher at the local high school. And we had a big high school, so it is the high school, even though he taught 7th and 8th grade science. And along with that, he was a track coach. He did football coach. He taught uh, driver's education in the summer times. As many teachers in the 80s did, they did yeah, all that sure. other stuff. Like, right. And then he ran clock at the basketball games. 
my mom did the noblest profession, I think, which is stay at home with us a majority of the time. And then she transitioned when we were older, you know, sort of driving ourselves places and stuff like that. She transitioned to working at an eye clinic. Um, cool. As administrative. Now, I mean, they, they moved to Park Rapids, Minnesota, which is right in the heart of Lake Country in the very center of Minnesota where all the vacation stuff is. They own a nice house there, and my dad continues to work. He just turned 70. He, he will not stop working, probably. <laughs> yeah. That's his way and the way of many of that time period, I think. The, yeah. Just, and they, they just can't stop. Sure. Uh, were, were they musical, uh, either of them play instruments, sing? I mean, what was, what's their musical experience like? I would, I think that they were musical. I just don't think that musical expression was something that happened sort of noticeably. So, um, they loved music. I remember, um, for my mom, I remember, uh, her having, um, records you know of famous artists at the time some some of the time and hearing those but and then also you know going to church and hearing them sing and I, if i recall they were singing in tune yeah know, as as a adult choral artist thinking back were my parents singing in tune yeah sure as a kid trying to remember it i think they did and i think they sang the parts as well in the old hymn books um so they were, but I don't, it just wasn't, I think what you're asking is, was it a part of like their daily milieu? Was it, and it yeah. wasn't really. But one thing that they did advocate for, for me and my two brothers, was that we were going to take piano lessons. I mean, hmm. we were forced. And I do mean forced. I mean, yeah, sure. at that time, I mean, there were tears shed. Uh, there was a like an egg timer put on yeah. the piano and the minutes were set. And if you didn't practice, you had to sit there either crying. It didn't matter what you were doing. You just had to fulfill that time. And I think over the course of time, all three of us went different directions. I mean, I was sort of a guilt ridden kid that it kind of had a thought in my mind of like, I guess I'm sitting here. I don't want to do this, but I, I might as well, since I have 30 minutes, that I have to sit on this piano bench. Yeah. And so I started to actually do it and like it. Whereas my two other brothers, I think sort of, they did it for a few years. And then I think now, now me being a parent can sort of tell what their attitude was. It's like, okay, we did our penance and now we're going to let these kids off the hook. So we don't have to listen to them anymore. Sure. And, and so I just kept going and that, that sort of, they encouraged music. They encouraged us all to pick an instrument in fifth grade, and they encouraged us all to sing in the choir, and all of us did that. But yeah. so were they musical? I think they're musical supporters. You know, yeah, they enjoyed seeing music happen in their kids. So besides uh, their uh, you know church going musical experience, which you know any good uh, Midwestern Lutheran kid knows uh, what that feels like right was it lutheran church you went to it wasn't but it was ah. it was a baptist church but it was uh, it. i mean the same essentially the same hymns sure i would assume but were uh did they listen to music around the house where i mean did they listen to like radio pop music are there are there 
you know, albums or things that you remember hearing around the house when you were young? Honestly, if I were to, I'm, I'm, if I say this wrong and they hear it, I, I'm sure it'll all be told like I forgot about stuff, but yeah, I do remember there being a record player and that, but I don't remember listening to a lot of it that, I mean, if there were, if I could remember a radio station on, it would be the local city radio station, the talk, the talk radio station that talked about the news and what was going on in the town. I do not remember music being played in the house very much, to be honest. Certainly not. Well, I can 100% say not, you know, in the, when I was growing up, it'd be the 80s. Certainly not like what was prescient at the time, not, yeah. you know, listening to Firehouse, you know, in our yeah. house or something, like sure. that, which I, I, by the way, I love Firehouse. Um, um, but, and, and honestly, I don't recall us also ever listening to, let's say classics, you know, but maybe in the car, that would be like a, like, I, I think NPR was happening at the time. I can't remember mm. how long it was going on, but if we were to listen to something, it might be that NPR. Yeah. So, uh, when, uh, I mean, is there a time where you can sort of, uh, pinpoint in your early life where music kind of uh got its hooks in you because it sounds like piano was more of an obligation initially uh initially. and it's some of some of your musical experience was you were you were doing this because you had to or because it was expected of you um when did that start to change and become something that you did because you really wanted to well, I don't want to overstate it. The obligation did move to, I think, enjoyment fairly quick, quickly, even though it still like intersects a little bit yeah. with obligation. I don't know. I think I think before I got to seventh grade, so that time between third grade and seventh grade, like but when I went to fifth grade to pick my instrument, I was knowing enough about music that I chose the oboe for my instrument. You know, everybody walks in and you get everybody. Yeah. Oh, there's everybody picking the trumpet or the the percussion or the flute. That's it. I mean, so <laughs> right. I was like, is there anything else? And I was deciding between the French horn and the the oboe. Although that could also mean because my Enneagram number is a four. So I just wanted to be different than everybody yeah. else. So maybe that's the case too. But I also think by that time I'd gotten good enough at piano um, to be able to play something. I think that's part of the problem with a lot of people that quit pianos that they, they're like just quitting right as they get to enjoy what's happening, you know? Yeah. And I think I soldiered on long enough to be able to play something decent, you know, not just like Alfred book one, two, three, you know, it was beyond yeah. that into something better where it was music happening, you know, and yeah. some simple Bartok piece or a simple Debussy piece or something like that. And that transition happened. I think when I got to seventh grade, I was fully invested in that music would play a major role, at least in my high school career. And uh, how and when did that move you to start writing music i mean were you uh composing early on uh were you composing and didn't really realize you were composing or were you 
purposefully writing things really early or was that something that came later? That's a great question, especially the one about composing and not really knowing about it. That's an interesting thought. Although the truth of the matter is that I didn't write, I didn't compose music probably until I was 21, 20. I, and I've said this story to many clinics out there, you know, I get a chance to go and uh, that this question is asked all the time. And I don't think it's sort of solidified in some sort of myth. It feels like it. But um, I do remember not specifically not composing anything of my own before my sophomore year of college. Hmm. Certainly. I don't know why that is. I, I truly don't. So when the, this whole, the notion of composing came, it came immediately and like a flood, like it was hmm. bursting out rather than something that was developing over a long time, over a decade of being a kid. I'll be honest. I mean, I was too busy as a kid also doing other stuff, doing the music of other people. I just didn't even, it sure. didn't even come up. Nobody brought it up. It was always, wait, I got, I got to play this next Rachmaninoff piece. Not, have you considered writing something of your own? Yeah. I mean, maybe the only thing was, uh, the only thing close to it was that I was in a high school quartet group, like every other. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> like every other dweeb. In high school <laughs> and and i was in one and and maybe we did arrange a couple things but and maybe that's what 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 provoked me about your your question about composing without knowing it but to yeah. be honest i mean i i have a visceral uh memory about sort of deciding i want to compose and compose for the sake of catharsis to compose with a purpose, not just to create music. Yeah. The act of creating music as a vehicle to release emotion. That's sort of yeah. why I started writing. It wasn't any other reason than that. Well, I'm uh, a little bit later going to ask you about some specific pieces, and I, I have a feeling that that will uh, that will come up again because. You have written some, uh, I would say, emotionally charged music, which I guess most composers uh, do, right, at some point. But um, uh, we'll, we'll talk about some, uh, at least one specifically that I think is pretty highly emotional and is a uh -oh. cathartic, a cathartic sing. Um, I want to uh, step away momentarily from asking a. a, a kind of big life questions uh we're gonna play we're gonna play a little game if i if you'll indulge me um so because our our sponsor for the episode is four fires metering we're going to play a little game called fire not fire okay. it's going to be kind of a, a, a rapid succession of things i'm going to give you a, an item a topic and you'll tell me if it is either fire or not fire and uh you, you are free to um, expand on that uh, if you want to, but you don't have to. Okay, but here's a, a really odd question. Like, if, what if, is this like 
like too soon for those who have lost their homes to fires. <laughs> Just kidding. Mike, you're you're right. You're right. You're saying uh, that fire is good, right? Or is yeah, fire is good. good. Fire is good. Okay, fire is good in this case. I was just thinking, like, what if somebody hears this that fire is awful? No, I'm Eric. Just, okay, I, I'm ready. I tell you, I'm ready. Uh huh. This is how we do it on my podcast. Just let it roll. Just let uh, it ride. I mean, I just recently ride. finished an episode of you doing really phenomenal Italian accented English. So hey. uh, I understand. Okay, this is fire, not fire. Uh, Minnesota winters. Fire. Yeah, you like the snow. Yeah. You're a, okay. Okay. Yeah. I again, I think growing up where I did um, is helpful to making it enjoyable because i mean we are an hour to an hour two hours from the coldest place in america consistently yeah. the international falls area and you know i remember waiting for the bus you know negative 20 30 40 degrees and it just i i don't know i just i have a a very um special love of feeling <laughs> the wind on my face at negative 10. I, no one in the audience probably has any understanding of what, why I would say that, but I do. I love it. There's some, I just, it's refreshing. I don't like humidity. So yeah, cold, cold strips the air of that. And I, so I, I do love winter quite a bit. Got it. How about uh, Minnesota summers? Not fire. Because of humidity. Well, and mosquitoes. Yeah. And however cold it gets, it gets that hot in the summer too. Even way up there, it'll get into the 90s and 100s. And I just, look, like I said before, I'm Scandinavian. And with that comes sort of the blood of, I, I just don't have the equator in me. I don't have, I understand. It's just the tundra is where I, I understand. Going. All right. Uh, number three, sushi. Oh, I at one time would absolutely say not fire, but that's probably because I never had sushi. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So many people I do. just don't, right? So I'm going to say um, a small campfire, <laughs> a tiny, sure. you know, it's keeping you warm, but it could go out at any minute. Yeah. All right. Good. Uh, number four, coffee from Starbucks. Ooh. Well, I'll say, um, I'll say not fire, but I do remember two things. I'll I'll share. You know, we lived in Seattle for a mm -hmm. while, and so this is a complicated question because there was a Starbucks in the university. What's it called? The, the uh, down the hill from the college, uh, University Village. Yeah, U Village. Yep. There was a Starbucks. U Village. There was a Starbucks there that had a clover for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember a colleague of mine, Maya, and I would mm -hmm. go go there and, and you know talk about nonsense. Usually, like we'd be like, "Well, tell me about the glass bead game." Oh, great! Here we go. <laughs> boy i just can't picture that I from the two wait. of you right i can't wait um and then but they had a clover and so 
your the concept a clover is a you know a brewing method machine and the i'm sorry but that was some of the best coffee i've ever had was out of that clover it's just a different and it didn't matter if it was starbucks it, sure. at all i mean it was they were doing legitimate high quality beans in small i mean it was super expensive i mean it was four dollars and fifty cents for a like a 10 ounce or something yeah which, i mean it's we're not talking about a latte we're just talking about black coffee right the other thing i remember long ago was this uh roast that they had called red and i think they released it during christmas never seen it since but i think this mm. was maybe eight ten years ago and so like i said i think this whole concept of I, I do consider myself a coffee snob, but there's a sort of a sense of snobbery that goes to the point where you can realize that fake snobbery exists. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I it's do. Just the downing of Starbucks doesn't make any sense to me anymore. I sure. totally get it. It's corporate. It is there, you know, on every street corner. But on the other hand, um, they do have if you're looking right, they have fire to them. We would, I, I would say the capacity to make great coffee, but not always the, uh, the will to make great coffee. I think so. But yes. And, and, you know, and that's good. I think, you know, that's fine. But on the, sure. so I, like I said, I, I would say not fire except for yeah. the occasional spark. All right. Uh, number five, Mozart. Yeah, I knew. I I should have known. Because, um, no, I'll just say it. It's not fire. Come on, come I, on. I, it's like it's like the ocean of not fire to me. <laughs> to me. I know it's heresy. I yeah. I'm just gonna. You know what? Instead of always apologizing for it, people in the world, I will just commit. I'm gonna commit Own it. that Mozart. I just would, you know, not a fan, not a fan. Mm -hmm. That's heresy. I totally get it. Whatever. Let's <laughs> let's move on. Uh, number six, really long books. I would say fire. Although um, in recent, oh no, I'll still say fire. I was about to say sort of run out of energy to read long books, but you know what? No, I have several that I. I've loved recently, so I'll say fire. You're a reader. I, I, read I, a lot I get it. Years. You read a lot. Uh, so on the same, uh, kind of in the same vein, how about e-readers? I don't have one, so I don't know. So you, it's fire. always, you, you always have a physical book. The physical book, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I generally feel that way about books that I care about, but I have recently, like, if I just want to read, like, you know, a quick, dirty, like crime novel, you Damn know, Brown. yeah. Oh, come on. I love it. But give so that you, to me. You use like a nook or something. I've got a, like an iPad mini that oh, I got yeah. free at one point. And so okay. I've got the Kindle reader on there and okay. yeah, for stuff that I is just like that. That's it's great. It's great. Do you get tired reading it from it? Uh, I usually don't have enough time to read it once to be tired oh, from reading it. you know it's it, 
I read stuff like that because it's, you know, two, three minute chapters sometimes and I can, Got it. you know, pound out a couple yep. of those. Uh, all right. Number eight, pineapple on pizza. Oh, I just had this. It's a uh, fire. I just had it the other day. See, you're keeping the controversy coming. Uh, number nine. Do you not like pineapple? Oh, no, I, I, I do. But, you know, that's a whole thing. There are people that hate that. Because, well, but it, what's the pizza called? I, um, like a Hawaiian? Hawaiian. There you go. Yeah. yeah I'm telling you, it's controversial. All right. Uh, number nine, taking pictures of your food. Ooh. Uh, I would say not fire, but <laughs> there are certain circumstances where if food can be defined as... I don't know. I mean, but we've got we've got in our kitchen a cookbook with beautiful pictures of food and it's art. Yeah. So I love it. I mean, I love to look at it. That being said, all of us know what you're saying, which is us taking pictures of our food and it never looks right. It's just I, it looks I, like slop every time. And I do it all the time. Even oh, even you? even. Oh, man, don't don't follow me on Instagram. It's ridiculous. It's mostly it's, my Instagram is pictures of food and pictures of my baby. And that's it. So do you try when you take a picture of it. Do you try to like put put it in? Like, do you make sure that you have the cutting board out and you stick it on there and you're doing a picture of it? Like yeah, sometimes. I mean, I, I, I certainly sometimes make an effort, but you have to, again, especially recently i like my cooking has gotten better my ability to do that well has improved but i've i've got a one-year-old who like i finished the meal and he's already been screaming for 10 minutes about where's my food so uh my plating game is a little it's like what what kind of plating and picture can i get before i have to right. feed my toddler right. uh so yeah you've got to uh, instagram is what you got to do that's you. right that's right. Oh, uh, right. All right. All right. Last one, fire, not fire. Deciding to record a podcast. I would say fire. It is fun. It's uh, fun. But I will I will admit I will admit that now we're we're heading into season three. And um <laughs> just our conversations lately have been just kind of tired about yeah. <laughs> like when are we going to get around to it? Well, ugh. Um, so it is fire. I think part of it is that it's just difficult to, um, when you, when you're not doing this for your job, like you're, I think a lot of podcasters, uh, that's what they do. They're building podcasts They're doing podcasts, sure. but when you're just doing it in your spare time as a, you know, it, like, you're just scrambling to find a time. It becomes more of a challenge to keep the fire burning. Totally. Um, although, as soon as you get on the podcast and you start talking, it's there. It's there. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Uh, all right. Hey, thanks. That was uh, Fire Not Fire presented by Four Fires Meter, a little game in the middle of our uh, conversation here. Okay, friends, I want to take a minute to tell you about the sponsor for today's episode, Four Fires Meadery. First, Meadery in Toledo, they are making some absolutely incredible stuff. And the good news is that even if you can't drop in for a few glasses, you can have the mead shipped directly to your door. 
I am not sure I can imagine a more exciting package to open. Right now on their website, you can order things like Mangos, a mango pineapple honey wine with ghost peppers added. The ghost peppers might sound kind of intense, but the sweet and heat are amazingly well balanced. Or maybe a bottle of Little Pink Lawn Chair. This is their strawberry, raspberry, and lemon mead to give you a taste of pink lemonade in the summer year round. I had a glass of this on their patio a couple of weeks ago and, well, it's the perfect summer beverage. If you want to try some, visit them on the web at 4fmeadery.com and order a bottle today. They're shipping nationwide and you don't want to miss out. Again, that is the number 4fmeadery.com to order your bottle today. I also hope you will show them some support on social media at Four Fires Meadery on Instagram. It's a great follow. Buy some mead, you won't regret it. And now, back to the conversation. And I want to start, uh, and this is a little intense maybe, but I want to ask you if um, you'd be willing to talk a little about Sing in the Dark Times. Sure. I haven't talked about that piece in a long time. Well, I love it. It, it was, um, I had an opportunity to sing it at the University of Washington, and it was um, just a, a, an incredible experience. So I, I wonder if you could tell people a little bit about the genesis of the piece, where it came from, and um, yeah. If I'm recalling correctly, this was um, when I was living in Seattle a long time, and I had started to sing in a group called Choral Arts, who now goes by the name Choral Arts Northwest. I had established a really, really great friendship with their conductor, Robert Bodie, who uh, had decided over the a number of years to do several pieces of mine. Um, which was a gift because that that choir is pretty good. They they do some good they do some good work. Um, they got some great people in there too. Uh, and I started singing with them, but also um, you know Robert and that choir does a lot of commissioning. And I remember now that I'm talking about it, I remember sitting down with him. I can't remember where it was, but I'm pretty sure it was in Capitol Hill. Those of you that are know about Seattle, and we talked about the possibility of writing something for a concert the next season. Um, and maybe some of my favorite words were said, which was just do whatever you want. Mm. And he, you know, he, he just threw out, you know, some, some commission price and all this stuff that, and he said, but, and then I said, well, you know, I would like to write something more substantial and much longer than I think you were initially thinking. I want to, at the time, and I still, I want to, I want to sort of push myself, you know, I want to push who am I and what is my composing? Because I think a lot of times the way that commissioning works is that uh, and I, an ensemble or organization has a certain amount of money and the way that it's set up is that that only affords a three to five minute piece period. Sure. And the composer is just going to take that and go, well, that's all I'm going to write for you because that's all the time I have to fit that amount. But I, I was still in, you know, doctoral school or just out of doctoral school. And I had the time and energy to, to be 
more creative than that, I guess. And I think it was established that this would be at, uh, they wanted to do something to honor the Holocaust. And I took that with a lot of respect. No, that's not the right way to say it. I, I had a great respect for it because I get a sense sometimes that composers in the core world kind of use, I shouldn't say that, maybe I should, use tragedies to, <laughs> to make choir pieces or make pieces of music rather than writing pieces that represent the tragedy a little bit. Do you know what I mean by that? Like I do. it's a reverse order. I don't I don't know how to describe that right. But I knew that was going on because I've heard a fair number of things. Uh 9/11 is a perfect example of that. Uh where there's a number of pieces that that was like coming out too quick. I mean, just like what? How do you you can't write about this so quick. I mean, let things develop a little bit. Now, the Holocaust is a different story, but yet at the same time, it sort of has that thing about if you're going to write something about one of the tragedies in human history or ugliness in human history, you, you need to walk in there with a great deal of respect. And I remember, you know, one of my favorite composers is Messian. And just, I remember hearing some music by him and knowing the impact of that time period on him and just, and just thinking, man, you, if you're going to write something, it's got to be represented, representative of the moment. I decided on a triptych uh, of poems that would be essentially one long piece with piano, because at the time, uh, Choral Arts had a, a guy named Lee Thompson playing the piano, who is an excellent piano player. Um, and they, he was capable of playing anything. So I, what I wanted to do is to create a piece that was really, really hard and really, really uh, ugly in a pretty way. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> ugly in a beautiful way. If anybody listens to the piece, they'll know exactly what that means. Yeah, right. It was curious, the first poem that I chose for that piece was a poem, and I can't, I, I'm sorry, I, I didn't know you were going to ask about it, because I, otherwise I would have the, the guy's name, but um, he was a, he was somebody that was writing about World War One, not World War Two, and that poem is about the descent of the sun, and how it relates to, the sinking of the sun relates to the sort of the what happens when evil takes over it doesn't just happen in a flash sometimes it you can see it happening slowly over time mm. now slowly sinks the day-long sun i think or something like that
then there was some sort of uh, the only other thing of really to talk about in the first piece was this motor that happens in the piano that I sort of did, which when you, if and when you listen to the piece really speaks to do, impending doom. I just, you cannot help but hear that and not think something bad is going to happen. Well, because it's, it's moving, right? The piano is this kind of driving right. rhythmic force, but it's also really, uh, kind of disjunct in its movement. Mm. And so it's not, um, I mean, it, you know that it's, uh, it's disconcerting. And yes. of course the, the choir at the end of the first movement really kind of raises to a, a scream. I mean, it's a, yeah. a kind of guttural uh, sound coming from them. So yeah, the piano definitely pushes to that. something like that the piano and the way the way that it's moving with all the it feels a bit like gears and you know a, a good way to explain it if you were to do this piece would be to maybe that's the train that's leading you to Auschwitz or something this yeah. this is the machine that's bringing you to movement too and movement two is probably one of the the better pieces I've ever written or the better moments and what I love about it, I mean, Arvo Pear is a was probably one of my bigger influences for that moment in in that. Oh, what was it? Fiorellina, I think, is the, where it's just a violin and a piano, and the the piano is just playing. Oh no, that's just piano. I'm sorry, I can't remember which one. Anyway, there's an album that he had where. It's very sparse, very cellular, and it's just triadic movement constant, continually, and it's like blowing your mind. And that's honestly where this sort of came from. And the, the poem is about a big pile of hair, <laughs> a mm -hmm. big pile of hair. And at the bottom of the pile, you find a pigtail. That's really all it is about. But even me saying it is horrific. Even me saying it out loud is amazing. Um, it's just unbelievable. I was so I was just listening to it um, ten minutes before we talked, um, and uh, the second movement. So you, I mentioned the first movement ends with this kind of guttural kind of scream from the choir, and then the piano comes into movement too, and it's at, at the very very onset. It's very sweet. And you kind of go, oh, I'm going to get, I understand where this is going. There was this tension, tension, and I'm going to get some release here. And the piano starts really pretty. And then it almost immediately becomes terrifying. In the way that like children are used in horror movies, you know? Uh, I, I mean, like that, that it, it is something that, that shouldn't be scary, and it is. And so you, you this piano kind of comes in and then, 
disconcerting. It's, it, you feel very uncomfortable right away. And then there's this kind of elongated, beautiful, um, difficult soprano solo uh, singing, you know, this uh, text that gets more and more kind of intense and ugly as it goes. the end uh is repeating no 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 and kind of building no. there and it's um no yeah, yeah and about a, a, a pigtail with a, a ribbon and it is um it's stunning the two the two things i'll highlight is uh, no is not in the poem that was me literally thinking no <laughs> as a composer <laughs> as a composer and then writing chords that are underneath it going no like we're watching this and going no we need to agree no no over and over again meanwhile uh the soprano solo i thought was so one of my favorite things i did for this particular piece was at the end did essentially the soprano solo when he, when she starts to sing about the pigtail it moves into a very very sweet childlike melody i mean a very very sweet uh nursery rhyme mm -hmm. almost underneath all this no no and yet the piano almost like in a horrifying you know when you're in a sometimes when you're a horrifying movie and all it's just the sustaining character of mm -hmm. something is horrifying two really to me was a an image that we're looking at and that the 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 piano and in, in that piece was more of a transformative character do you remember this comes to mind do you remember the movie big fish big fish mostly With, yeah well there was a scene that was popular when the they were in the circus and they saw each other, I think, for the first time. I don't know this movie very well, but this scene comes to mind where the popcorn flew in the air and stood in the air yeah. and they walked. 
that's kind of what this is where things freeze and the piano is just the tinkle of the the frozen everything mm. around it and and you know when when i decided to transition to piece three um piece three the title of piece three is yes which i think is a real coup i think based on what piece two was so it, it just goes immediately into piece three which turns out to be uh, acapella for the most part because the piano unwinds into piece three to a the famous Bertolt Brecht uh, quote about in dark signs, will there be singing? Yes, there will mm. be singing about the dark times. And so I really solidified with the word yes, you know, after all that trauma, that yes, is the answer. Yes. And the whole piece concludes with the word yes. Mm. It's just a very, oh, it's very bizarre, the way it turned out. But I do admit there's a moment in um, also in piece number three that is some of the best or some of my favorite writing I've ever done um, personally of the drama of encapsulating what's come before in this third piece. So I don't know. I'm glad that you brought it up. I haven't thought about it in a while. And this is a piece that will never be published and will probably receive very few performances and i'm grateful that you got a chance to do it and to that it was rec you know at least moderately recorded by yeah well see well, washington did yeah yeah i think it ought be published and ought be pub uh performed uh quite a bit more because it's it's great music thank you i appreciate it yeah uh well here's the thing uh speaking of slightly bizarre and pieces that are not currently published uh, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna ask you about another one of those yeah. um, because I had an opportunity to be uh, I, I kind of uh, fell into being part of a commissioning consortium uh, and we uh, got a piece uh, mostly by you, partly by you, uh, called mm -hmm. Launching into Space. Right. And this uh, has a great backstory. This has a great backstory. Uh, it's it is a wildly bizarre. It's a wildly bizarre kind of piece, and it does have a good backstory, and that's why I want to ask you about it. Awesome. <laughs> the backstory to this piece is that um, in I don't, I don't know, maybe two thousand eight or nine, I had this weird thought. 
do you know how there is an art idea called i think it's called the elegant skeleton fold a piece of paper and you draw something on on it mm -hmm. then you fold it again and give it to somebody else with just a little bit of the drawing remaining and then the next person draws mm -hmm. something then you fold it again and the next person draws something and that started to get me down an idea of why isn't there pieces written by multiple people mm -hmm. Why is it only one? And then I had another idea. I thought, I, 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 I was thinking at the time my cousin painted a little bit, and I was thinking, man, wouldn't it be cool for me to paint something? I'm not good at all. The way that I do on one half, and then an like awesome painting on the other, and somehow the painter takes what's not great and forms <laughs> it into what it should have been on sure. the other side. If these ideas start to rest, you know, really revolve, uh, you know, you know, rumble around in my mind. And then I thought, you know, the sort of the perfect way this could work would be to have a double choir piece where one composer was in charge of one choir and the other composer was in charge of the other choir. What, that would take away a couple things. Like the first idea that I had would be you'd have to have one composer write like four measures and then the next, you know, and that, then another composer write another four measures. I did end up doing that, not with the choir, but with uh, like chamber ensemble when I was in hmm. Wisconsin. And it, it was hard. It's, it's not, it's so hard. But this one, you know, I started to think it was such a cool idea that I started to ask composers, would you like to do this? And I've asked, I, I think there, I, I cannot, I don't have an NDA of who I asked, but I asked some composers that every single person that's listening to this knows very well. Okay. <laughs> I asked a number of them about this mm. and this is a testament to how strange the idea is, is that it, it's not that I got shot down, but it, they just, it couldn't, they couldn't handle it. Yeah. If you're listening to this, imagine being a composer, what it would require for you to write a piece, half of a piece with somebody else. What, I just want you to think, what's the first thing in your mind that you'd have to give up? I think one of those is autonomy, complete and utter autonomy. Mm. You don't have a say in the whole piece. Now, so if you're a composer that everything has to be your baby and it, and you, you know, you're a composer where everything better be exactly you because you are your music and you, you know what I mean? There are a lot yeah. of those composers that can't do this. They couldn't do it. So, um, I asked uh, many people, and then I remember, I can't remember where it was, but I asked Tim Tkach, who who is one of many, many Minnesota composers of my age, uh, that is a great guy, used to be a Cantu singer, very good composer, uh, is uh, 
married to Jocelyn Hagen, who also is a composer, and they run Graphite. And upon him kind of getting jazzed about the idea, and I think I asked him because I sensed in him that this he was capable of what this piece required, which was vulnerability. That's all. That's what it would require. It would require you to accept things that you're not comfortable with. And so he had the, the engine of graphite to sort of form a consortium, and we, we sort of designed the idea. And then he brought a poem called Launching Into Space, which is fabulous. It's about, essentially about love, all in all. And, and then we started the long, tedious process of each writing uh, a choir. I wrote choir two, he wrote choir one. And I think the way it started, I'm like, how do you even start that? I think I said, um, I'll create <laughs> an ambiance, and then you just start writing whatever you want, I think is what I said. Because I felt like since this is my idea, I had more of the ownership of vulnerability on me. Like I, I was letting myself go, I will write anything to whoever, whatever, whatever he does. I will yeah. try to, and because if there was one thing that I enjoy about myself as a composer, it's that I don't think I am in any of my music. I don't need that. I don't, I can be wrong, you know, or I, it's not a big deal to, um, well, whatever. Anyway, the point is, is that that started and, you know, like anybody could guess, there were things that that I did that he did not like, and there were things that I did that, or that he did that I didn't like. And there was pushing and pulling and prodding and um, agreeing to leave some things and then reworking a few things. And I think what, what's left is um, something completely bizarre and unique, completely bizarre and unique. And yet it, it, I actually think turned out really cool.
my big thing in the whole piece was wanting to make it uglier, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> to make it more chromatic, to make it more something that that direction. And, uh, and so that was a completely unique experience and, and one that I, I honestly would love to do again. I really would with, with another composer. And because I think there's something there that's really, really good. That's possible. That, that possibility of, uh, complete and utter uniqueness that one person wouldn't be capable of, which is being vulnerable to each other, playing off each other in one, in one piece. Yeah. Well, it, it turned out, I think, much as you described, I mean, it is, it's challenging and it's a little bit strange. And I remember handing it out to singers and uh, their reaction was a little bit like, what the, what um it took you know it wasn't it isn't a piece that uh i think so not everyone's going to grab it and go this is now my favorite piece of music ever upon no. sight reading it the first time no. um but the more we got into it and the more we understood this interplay between the two choirs and the more we could make sense of the poetry and and how both you and tim treated it approached it uh i mean I, we fell in love with it i think it's a great uh great piece it's got a, just a ton of cool stuff and uh is another one that i man I, I think more people ought to be singing you know it was interesting when we got it i knew at least one other comp uh, conductor who had received this piece yes uh and i, I mean there were several but i knew personally knew one and i don't know i think they performed it but i don't know that they ever shared a recording of it i think no there were several groups that you're the only did not one. share recordings of it yeah because it's hard it's hard uh it's, really it's a hard, hard. piece it's really, really, um, really hard. and it really hard. it it takes um it takes some buy-in but i love that um i love that you you two we're not afraid of writing something that was going to challenge people who had asked you to write something. Right. Um, right. You know, it's, it, if the piece is uh, anything, it isn't safe. Uh, and I think that's Actually, great. Yeah. I'll be honest. If there's one thing that I mean, these two pieces might have in common and that I'll actually, I'll be honest and, on again on your podcast a lot of pieces if you were to go to my website maybe it's taken a while for the core world to catch up to me doing this but um i don't find safe choir music that enjoyable anymore sure so and i see myself frozen but i'll keep talking that's good i can um, hear you that's good it's recording um so, I mean, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot more uh, with my own choirs, uh, you know, composers like Mason Bates and, you know, some newer composers from, from Britain, like Roxana Panufnik and mm -hmm. people like that. There's a, there's a thing, there's a thing here. 
which is recapturing that challenge and I'm not going to say ugliness, but challenge and abrasiveness or just not beauty is a direction that's worth going down, you know, and, and that's honestly these, these pieces that you brought up tonight and what I'm interested in writing, you know, when I, I said before that Robert Bodie said, do anything you want. Several other in the last five or six years, uh, conductors have said that to me and what comes out to be honest is hard i'm not i'm not like new complexity hard okay it's not what i'm doing but what i'm doing is saying you know the human voice can do more than this and i mean i'm not comparing myself to carolyn shaw either i'm not going that direction either but what i'm what i'm doing is saying the human voice is capable of drama that we aren't doing or accessing very much. And how can I speak to that through either uh, the use of the poems that we're setting or the even just like the angriness of tone? Um, where, you know, not everything has to be pretty all the time. Yeah. And so that's where I'm at. And I'm glad you brought these two pieces up because they're great examples of what I'm interested in, you know, really right now. It's not that I'm not interested in After Me on the Hill, but, you know, that was a long time ago. And, and I'm sort of, you know, composers' interests move and change as they, they hear more or experience more. So that's where I'm at. I'm glad you brought them up. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you were willing to talk about them. You know, it's interesting because we have over the course of now, this will be episode 10 uh, of this podcast, uh, talking about things that are uncomfortable or, or not always beautiful is uh, in choral music is something that I think has become a theme, uh, partly because that interests me a lot as oh, well. Good. So yeah. um, that's, you know, part of the part of the reason that I wanted to have you on and want to talk with you. You know, I have, uh, I mean, I could talk with you about a gazillion more pieces because you are prolific and you have a lot of pieces. And I actually, I have some like burning questions to ask you about you, like philosophical questions, but I think that they, uh, they might necessitate a, uh, like an entire other show or uh, maybe uh, can a different we do setting. Round two, Brad? Yeah, can I've because I have questions. But let me. Can I ask we you like? Do round two. Can I ask you yes. a couple of very quick, light and We're fluffy on. questions? Do it. Fluff it up. Uh, what is your favorite meal? Oh, it's a. It is going to have to be a hamburger. A nice. From anywhere in particular, or wow. just in general? Oh, man. Oh, man, I've had some good hamburgers in my life. In, in Des Moines, there is a place called Zombie Burger that I really recommend to anybody that comes through town. There's something they do with their meat that's really good. But honestly, if I had a, there's a place um, in Seattle, and I'm not going to remember the name of it. It's on the way, when you're driving from the airport to downtown, there's a neighborhood not, you know, when you take the back way closer to, you know, there's a back way. I can't remember yeah. the highway, but it's uh, when you get close to the warehouse district down there, 
Yeah. There's there's some place. I you know what? I'll try to find the name of it and let you know. Okay. So good. And it's okay. just gross. They're so gross. And they're <laughs> so good. That's what you yeah. want. Is That's what just, you want. Oh man, I think it got rated in the top two or three uh burgers in Seattle, but and Seattle is a fair number of amazing burgers, but for sure. I'm a burger guy. I really do that. Uh, every Christmas, it's now a tradition with me and the boys to make a different burger with a different country as the sort of the, the thing. So last year we did nacho burgers, you know, and this year I think we're going to do Italian or who knows what, but nice. every year. And so hopefully by the time they're 18, they won't die of heart attacks, but also <laughs> will we'll have experienced other cultures food with their burger. For sure. Uh, are you a TV guy? Have you done what so many of us have and binged copious amounts of television during the last year and a half? I will be pleased to say no. I don't have cable. And I made not a pact with myself, but a decision to not watch anything on Netflix. Essentially, I haven't really watched anything on Netflix for a long, 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 long time. And I did the other day actually look at what's new and I'm like, man, I'm glad I haven't been here. <laughs> That's what <laughs> I said to myself because I'm like, what am I? I'm just scrolling. I'm just scrolling. Yeah. Does anybody else just scroll through these apps and you're like, sure. Know what to watch. Oh, I could watch Total Recall. Oh, I remember that. Oh, I could watch you know what I mean? And then I yeah. end up just not, there's a few shows that I think I watch, but no, I'm, I've been successful in not um, accessing my Delta waves too much. Right well, now. you're a, a better person than I am. Although if I could, the one show that I think came out last year that everyone should watch because it is absolutely joyful and wonderful and will make you feel good about yourself and humanity is Ted Lasso. Uh, it's on Apple TV and it is, uh, it's awesome. I'll have to look it up. It's I'll awesome. It up. It up. Uh, okay. I'm going to ask you one more question. Uh, what was the last book you read? Oh, fully or like fiction or, or are fiction. in the middle of reading whatever. Well, I'm honestly right now I've got several going. Uh, one of those is, um, I'm, I, I'll be honest, I'm currently reading Fox's Book of Martyrs. Okay. Which is a book chronicling all the martyrs throughout history and their stories. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what I'm reading right now. It's on my, on my, on my countertop. And how is it? It's fascinating. It's fascinating. I mean, it's, I know that you're laughing. You can't see my face. I'm not, I mean, but I'm I mean, not laughing. That's probably one of the last things you would have picked probably, but I don't know. I'm fascinated. It's amazing. And it reminded me, you know, uh, Kierkegaard in his uh, book, um, this present age was talking about our age, you know, the age after I mean, he was talking about his own age in the you know the late 19th century but it's so prescient for right now and he said what the world needs is not geniuses but martyrs that's what the world needs and it's fascinating when you read 
about martyrdom the just the different sensibilities that people have than we have today which is nothing but protecting you know our we love and crave safety but these there's a class of people that were totally of a different mindset just a different you know what i mean by that and so yeah you know read just re, there's no there's no implication necessarily other than it's just sharing the story of these martyrs and it's it's really fascinating to read about them uh and i i mean other than that i can't remember what else i'm reading but that's what's on on tap right now what are you reading i'm reading uh nothing worthwhile actually i've been uh, the last couple of weeks i've been reading through you know i'm a I'm an Amazon Prime member. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and you get a f at least one free book or sometimes a couple free books every month. That are, you know, it's early releases. It's, yeah, it's Wait. publisher. They're trying to push stuff out, Wait, right? How do I do get this? If you're, a, if you're a Prime member, they send me a, yeah. an email every, every month that says, claim your free book or your two free oh, books. I better look into this. So I, of course, pick mostly like, I don't know, cop novels and spy novels. And it's, it's weird because it's not, I, I'm not even sure how interested I am. It's not like the lifestyle. I don't know. Anyway, it's just junk reading. Um, and so I'm reading some free book. I think it's called agent zero or something. And classic. I did. I, I actually, the last one I read, um, uh, uh, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, but it was actually a really charming, lovely little novel uh, about a mom and a daughter, and it was it was really good. So sometimes you find diamonds in the rough, but uh, not always. Right. Uh, listen, we need to do a round two because yes, we, we need yes. to we need to discuss uh, uh, appropriate coffee brewing techniques, uh, how to make a good sourdough loaf. Yes. We need to get into uh, some philosophical talk, both personal and uh, large scale. And I've got much more music to ask you about. So we're going to have to do this again sometime. I would love to do round two also because hilarious what happens on the behind the scenes of podcast listeners and put yourself yeah. in Brad's place right now. <laughs> He's been talking to a Zoom picture that's frozen with me in not the best look. I will. Admit. Well, it's it's a little uh, Seth Rogen-ish, actually. It does have a Seth Rogen flair. <laughs> <laughs> but he's been having to trudge forward with a frozen screen. Bless you. Bless you, dear friend. Yeah, no. That's hard. You you made it look easy. Hey, uh, I'm going to say, I know you don't have a drink, but I'm going to say cheers, and uh, we'll do it again sometime. Prost. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for episode 10 of the Composer Happy Hour. Thank you to my friend Eric Barnum for the conversation. We will definitely be doing it again sometime. There was so much we didn't get a chance to talk about. Uh, in the meantime, find some of Eric's music to listen to. It's wonderful. And go check out his podcast, The Coral Contrarians. As always, we hope that you will rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to be listening, and consider sharing a link to your favorite episode on your preferred social media platform. Thank you again to our sponsor for the episode, Four Fires Meadery. Their meat is absolutely world-class, and you can have it delivered directly to your door by ordering at 4fmeadery.com. Looking forward to sharing another drink and a conversation with you all soon. 
Thanks again, everyone. Cheers.